This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is former CIA analyst David McCloskey. He is the author of Damascus Station. His latest, Moscow X, is out right now. And without further ado, David McCloskey. Why don't we just hop right into it in the interest of time? Let's do it. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Is that Daniel Silva over there in the corner? What do you got right there? Yeah, I've got, I've got, this is, uh, I've got a number of things going on over here. Got some of yours, the terminal list I loaned out to a buddy. So that's, that has vanished. You got some Luke Hooray, some Silva, some Bentley, some McIntyre, a little smattering of the spy cannon over here. Gotcha. So. Oh, you loan books, huh? books i, I don't books i don't do it anymore yeah no I, I don't do it i'll buy it if someone's like oh can i borrow that i'm like nope i'll buy it for you uh because once you do you never get it back like it's just, that's true that's true and if people I, aren't book what? people they don't understand are. yeah if people aren't a book people they don't get it and so immediately i'm like oh you're not a book person if you're asking to borrow that and not getting it for your own library what can i say i take pity on people you know i've, I've gone soft in my golden years i guess i used to and now i'm like wait a sec i'm not and then i never got them back i'm like oh that was a you know very important book because i remember like where i was when i bought it like why i got it um where i was when i was reading it how it impacted me like all these things like i, I just they're it makes they're so personal and so it's, it's so true it's, 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 I, I will say i get them most of the ones that i get back are, I would say I should charge. I yeah. should probably charge them for it. Just make them like get their own. Otherwise, and, yeah, yeah. No, well, make them get their own. Or I just buy it for them now. I'll just send it. That's why I have like some of the, the books that I that I gift out more often than, uh, than not. I have a couple stacks at home. So okay. if somebody, uh, we start talking about it or something or someone's like, what's your favorite, what's your most gifted book or what do you recommend for my son or whatever else, you know, then I'll be like, boom. But it's not, it's coming from a different stack. Different stack. Yeah, yeah. it's coming from a different, this is the ones that I can give out over here. I just did it the other that's day, right. actually. I need, I need a separate loaner shelf, I guess, up here. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm taking away from this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. Oh, man. Well, let's talk about uh, how you got into what you're doing now. And second book, congratulations. Um, coming out here. Um, and what was that path, especially into the into the CIA? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a sort of joining the CIA story that I bet would make the OSS, you know, skull and bones forebears like turn over in their coffins because <laughs> basically Did you get online. What's that? Did you get online and just uh, submit an application? Well, it was, it was slightly better than that. Uh, the guy who ran the Middle East analytics shop, like, you know, 15, 17 years ago was an alum of the school that I went to outside of Chicago. And the university of Chicago has a fantastic Middle East studies program they come through Chicago every year. The year he was running the shop, he comes down to my school and like does basically shows up at the, you know, IR like 101 or 201 class just to start talking about CIA. And, you know, I was like, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life at that point. Um, but just hearing him talk about what the work of the agency was like the mission got me excited. The fact that, you know, I actually learned something about how the world worked, which was big to me at that point, uh, and still is like, I just got really fired up for it. And so I put in an application, I interviewed with him 
And I ended up actually in the undergraduate intern programs. I was 19 when I got my full medical poly, all that kind of stuff, and showed up uh, summer after my sophomore year at Langley uh, to be an analyst. So it was it was a weird kind of a process um, in some ways, but that got me in the door. And you know, I did two summers there as an analyst, and then uh, joined full time when I graduated, and uh, and loved it. That is a really cool program that they have. Uh, I know yes. somebody else who, they, I think FBI has one similar to that, uh, probably some other agencies as well. Um, but uh, no, what a great, what a great program uh, to bring yeah. in, bring in younger people, or at least let them know like, oh, I, this is not what I thought. And I'm not going to waste all this time after I graduate from college, uh, you know, trying to get in the door here or whatever else, like, or wow, this is amazing. This is what I want to do yeah. with my life. Like I think internships yeah. are so valuable in that, in that respect. But, uh, so you didn't know what you wanted to do when you went to, to college. I always find that, and I shouldn't say that too much. Cause I, cause you know, we have, uh, our daughter just left for, for college the other day. Um, and I realized most people don't really know what they right. want to, to do. I was, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, uh, from a very early age. So for me, it's like, gosh, there's so many amazing things out there and we're in this country with all these opportunities. And, uh, how could you not like know kind of what you wanted to do, but I guess that's more uh, common. So what, what did you, what, what, did you have any sort of inclination? Like, oh, I'm kind of interested in this other thing or what were you what, like, why did you, we were in an international studies program. Yeah, I was in an international studies program. So you were there for so a reason. Kind of had some sense of like, you know, I want to do something related to the world, right? Which is a big, there's a lot of different things that you can sort of clunk into that bucket. Right. Um, and you know, I've been, I've been reading, I feel like the books that I picked up, like I have distinct memories of going to like Barnes and Noble and library with my dad when I was a kid, middle school, high school. And I was picking up in addition to just sort of spy fiction and, you know, thrillers that are taking place overseas or in these kind of different locations. Like I'm picking up a lot of books about global politics, world history, like for whatever reason, that was my gravitational pull. And so I think, you know, I simply remember when I told my mom, like, Hey, I'm going to major in international relations. She was like, Oh God, he's never going to get a job. Like that sounds like a made up. <laughs> yeah, then there's graduate school and then there's the uh, doctorate and then going to right. teach somewhere and never, yeah. <laughs> That's right. So she was like horrified. Um, but I had some sense of like, I actually think that deep down, it was this desire, it was this feeling that, you know, there were there were people and in institutions who understood how the world worked, actually. And I wanted to learn, I wanted to, I wanted to learn that. And so when the CIA officer showed up on campus and starts to talk about that job, you know, it felt like, it felt like the shortcut there, mm. right? Like this, these are, these are some of the people who have a sense of like what is actually going on in the world. Um, and I wanted to join. So, you know, as soon as, as soon as that set of conversations happened, I think things really clicked. Yeah. And I knew from there, it was like, you know, to your point of showing up and kind of knowing exactly what you wanted to do. As soon as that happened, it was like, all right, I'm, I'm in, this oh, is, nice. this is what I want to do. No, no doubts. That person who interviewed you and came to campus, were they there in uh, at Langley when you showed up? Or they like ushered they you through? So yeah, okay. they were for a while. They were still running office, uh, and so there was like a crop of us. You know, it, it, I went to a small Midwestern uh, liberal arts kind of Protestant school outside of Chicago, and if there's one thing that you know a, uh, a sort of good uh, good Protestant schoolboy is good at it's passing polygraphs. And so a group of us got in, you know, because we sort of had this, 
baseload level of guilt so they knew we weren't sociopaths but we also hadn't done anything wrong yeah so there was a little crop of us that joined together and you do uh you do a lifestyle poly right like a two-day deal oh yeah, yeah. Full, at 19 full lifestyle folly. Yeah. I would, I would not recommend that experience to many. No, many humans. it's awful. I use it in, uh, in the devil's hand. I start the devil's hand with, uh, with a poly kind of catch the reader up or to get people who haven't read the other novels, um, kind of introduce them to what's happened up to this point type of a thing. But I use the poly to, to do that thinking about my experience. Cause you did it at 19. I was 33. I want to say, give or take, right? All right so you had some more sins to confess. Yeah. To <laughs> I gave him a couple things, you know, you got to give him a, you know, you know, you got to give him a couple things. And one of the first things they asked me was, uh, have you visited antipolygraph.org in preparation for this interview? I remember that. I can't remember if it was in the, they must've asked me beforehand, you know, so they, right, kinda, right. Because you fill out a thing beforehand, as I remember, I mean, it's been a few years now. Um, and you fill all this stuff out and then you go in and you talk about those things first. And then yeah. you go in and then answer kind of some the same, similar, a couple other different ones uh, based off off that, off your answers to essentially, uh, you know, a questionnaire. Um, but, uh, yeah, you got to give them a couple little, you know, it, it, and, and I had gone to antipolygraph.org, but it's part of a um, interrogation course that I did in the military. Okay. So as part of that, um, they talked about uh, antipolygraph.org as part of the different interrogation things that we were discussing and going through kind of scenarios with. And so I went home and I, I did that was it was years prior that made three years before that four years before okay. I think but uh, so I so I answered it so I told him I'm like yeah you know I went to it but it wasn't like in preparation for this but I've definitely been on that it's interesting right. to me um, and I and that I know and I know your tricks rabbit, rabbit hole of questions there probably probably but I, <laughs> yeah but uh, but because I was kind of like what I know your tricks but uh, but at the same time it's still even though you know like I I. Yeah, I just like I'm curious about things, especially in the intelligence right. world, because um, there's so much crossover after 9/11, of course, even before, but especially after 9/11, uh, between the military and intelligence worlds um, and communities. But uh, but I I was still nervous, even knowing what I knew about the polygraph. I was still nervous in that room because it's like it is. You can feel everyone else's nervousness over the last wow. however long it's been since they painted the walls. Uh, you feel it's the the fear and the it's in the paint. It's like in the walls and you just feel like it's very uncomfortable. It's, it's awful. I, I still remember that there was a map of Ohio, like a ah. county map of Ohio on the, on the uh, wall of the room and like a bowl of, it wasn't even, it wasn't even like a candy you would recognize, but it was some kind of just like, you know, nameless labelless candy that was sitting there. And I remember, I mean, I was so nervous that I was like asking the polygrapher, you know, I, I basically, I, and I was like, maybe it's his office. So I started asking if he had some, connection to Ohio because I've got some family connections and he he looked at me like I was insane because he I don't even think he knew like that there was a map of Ohio in the room because he just funny. walked in to start administering a polygraph he's like what I mean it's just this weird you got the mirror yeah you know, you're, you're made to feel uncomfortable and you know there is something very strange about a complete stranger and you've got you know at this point I'm like I want this job I feel like yeah. this is on yeah on, you know? I felt the same way. Stranger, just sort of plumbing the depths of every personal decision that that you've made. Potentially, it's it's really a nasty yeah. experience. Yeah, it's really. I don't remember there being anything else in the room, and it, you know, it's been a few years, and you know, some things there. Sometimes there's uh, some overlap between what you've seen in movies or read in books, and then you know, memory is fallible just as it is, and then so it's. I don't remember anything being on the walls though. I remember the like okay. the mirror, the mirror it's thing, just pure white like. That's how I remember it. But now you mentioned it. I don't know if that's just me 
remembering it that way or if it's like a, from a movie that I've seen that kind of overlapped with my actual memory. I don't know, but I don't think there was anything on the walls. But you could, someone could then show me a picture right now of me in the room with the polygrapher and something very clearly on the there's wall. A map, there's a map of Ohio. Yeah, there's a map of Ohio right there in that can. You know, it's possible. It's, it's entirely possible. But uh, Did you have to go back? I had to go back. Had they made back. me like, I did it and I thought I was done. And the mm. guy was like, you should come back tomorrow. I think they do that. I think they do that to everybody. I may have talked to like one or two people out of everybody I've talked with um, that that went through the process who didn't have to come back. But I think part of the game is having you come back. Yeah, I bet. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, because because you're because they I I think they kind of leave it out there like. Yeah. But if you looked at your schedule, if you still have your schedule, and I have my schedule, um, if uh, you go back to that schedule that they give you for your week, I think that the day after your poly is pretty light if uh, if memory serves <laughs> on appointments. Did, did they reimburse you with an uh, envelope of cash for your, your visit? I think that they did and reimburse me, and I don't remember if it was cash, but now that you mention it, I think there was like a, not much. I think it was, I think they did, but well, see, I don't, I don't I was think it was 19 and in college at the time. And so Everything, the idea yeah. of like showing up to a window and having this, you know, like a, a woman who looked like she'd probably been working there for uh, four decades, hand yeah. you an envelope stuffed with cash was like a pretty new, a pretty new experience. For That's me. pretty I, cool. I distinctly remember that as like a window and they like lift the glass in the window and they gave you know the envelope to reimburse you for the the whole thing it's, it's yeah i'm having a memory of that now but i'm also thinking like it would be with that box of all the stuff um and i ended up getting accepted for anybody listening like what the, i thought he was in the military uh so yeah I ended up, it was i was going over there uh i guess about halfway through my time in the military and uh uh i got a, a class update the whole thing was going in and then uh decided at the last second the military was like hey we oh, why don't you go do his platoon commander tour over here and i wasn't expecting like a counter offer you know it never even crossed my mind um but when they did that i was like oh wait a second okay something new has entered into this calculus um right. so so i did that um but anyway it but but the process was fascinating and i've worked with the agency in in baghdad had an amazing experience with this uh program i was involved with over there but uh but going just going through that hiring process was fascinating and uh, I think my program, I won't say the name of it just for whatever reason, because I don't know if I've seen it in print yet, but it was, uh, it was uh, they actually developed it in Vietnam to get guys that were SF one day to kind of essentially the next day, um, figuratively, be uh, uh, work, working for the agency. Um, yeah. And then they brought it back. I think this is how, how it goes. I think after 9-11, they had so few people uh, in the paramilitary side, they realized they needed more. And so they yeah. reinstituted or reinvigorated or something, this program that allowed you to kind of skip a couple steps. I mean, you still had to do the poly, still had to do your psyche vow, still had to, you know, write a paper, still had to do a few things, but it took out like a couple steps that kind of fast tracked okay. you um, into get to get to the farm and then get up back to the, the paramilitary side uh, if memory serves. So that was how, that was kind of my. Um, Interesting. Yeah. But my first, like uh, after working with them in, 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 um, in Baghdad, I came back, I get the call and they, you know, cause I was said I was interested when I was over there. And then I go and go up to, uh, uh, to the DC area and go to a horrible hotel. Like I remember it was bad. This hotel. Oh, they're all, in. yeah. It's not, it's not nice. It was, it's yeah. Not, this hotel, I was nice. like, wait a second, you know, this is odd. Am I, how many, anyway. Uh, and, and then a guy came and met me and did a, a talk. And then I think I had to, 
write up something based on our talk. And then he came back, I think, to like read my notes of our initial conversation or something along. They, they, something. Made, you write, they made you write something? Yeah, first first thing in this crazy hotel. Uh, and I set it up because I'd heard so many, like I'd heard some stories from the farm and all this stuff. So I made sure I had water. I made sure I had like snacks because like, I knew this guy was coming. So I kind of set it up like, you know, I moved the room around a little bit, make it a little more, a little less awkward because it's just like, you know, two beds. It's just like a right. horrible hotel room um, and ground floor, like falling apart, like motel. I wouldn't even say hotel. I'd say motel if I had to, to, to you know, my memory of it anyway. And uh, like, no, like not a front desk that you then walk in, like it's over here and then you walk over here and it's like, you know, from the fifties or something. And that had been no renovation. probably owned it. <laughs> like, oh, probably, maybe, see. maybe yeah. there's cameras everywhere. Probably every, the guests aren't real guests. Uh, That's right. You know, <laughs> yeah, that, that may be true. Now looking back, I hadn't thought about that, but, uh, but yeah, so he came in and I did my, you know, had the stuff. Hey, we like water, we like a Gatorade, like a Coke, you know, whatever else I had there. So while I was doing whatever that he'd have, you know, something. So I was just, you know, trying, trying to think things through a little bit, but yeah, I had to write something that first, time. And at this point I'm fairly, you know, dependent on spell check for, for a lot, you know, you're just typing away <laughs> still back then. And it's, and so anyway, it went well, went well. And then it came back up, got the, another offer and then came back up and did all the poly and stuff that you're talking about. But, um, anyway, that's how that went, but you're 19 and you're doing your I'm, lifestyle. I'm poly. That now, must be now. like, <laughs> you look like yeah, you're, you're yeah. 22 now. I'm 22 uh, now. Uh -huh. That's right. <laughs> so you go do all that. You go back to school. Now, when you're back at school, after yeah. like, how does that change the rest of your time in college? Having, having now interned at the, at the agency, now you have a, some sort of a clearance. You've been through this lifestyle poly, you've met these different people and now you're back in school. How does that change the, your next couple of years of school? Well, you know, in one respect, it was really nice because I knew that if I didn't, uh, if I didn't screw it up, you know, I had basically figured out, yeah. I'd figured out by the time I was a sophomore, what I wanted to do and where I was going to work. And, that felt kind of taken care of, you know, and especially, I mean, look, I think, I think I, uh, I think when I was an intern, I was a GS five. Oh, wow. Uh, a scale, you know, which I mean, for those listening who aren't aware of the scale is, is really low. Yeah. Um, but I was pumped, you know, it's like, this is a paid internship yeah. at yeah. the CIA. I've got to clear, you know, and of course, you know, everyone assumes that they're, you know, you're just, I mean, I like all the spy fiction time, right? everyone assumes it's sort of kind of like that. And so they're like, wow, this is really cool. You know, it just has a cachet yeah. to it, which was really, uh, was really fun when I was, you know, 21. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a fun little brand to have associated with you. Right. So I was, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I was pumped by it. It felt like I had found, you know, where I was going to, where I was going to be. And uh, it, it was awkward though at school because you couldn't, the agency is not great, especially for employees who are under kind of who are overt for a time. Like, you know, I could tell people I was at the CIA, but the CIA is kind of weird about that, too. Mm. And they don't encourage you to do that. And so you kind of it felt a little uncomfortable, especially when I would like take classes, you know, on on, you know, Middle East history or politics or whatever. And it's like I'm studying this region in school and writing papers on it. But then I'm also you know, you're sort of peeking behind the curtain a bit in my summer internship and then eventually uh -huh. job as to like what is actually going on in some respects. And so that that bit of it was a little bit awkward. But for the most part, I was like, you know, I found it. This is what I want to do. Did they check in with you uh, during your time in college? Like you have to check back in or it's just like, hey, see you next Not summer. Once. Yeah. No, it's like 
they they cut you loose. Yeah. Uh, and I think they maybe sat me down at one point and they're like, you can't, you know, like just a reminder when you're at school, you can't just start telling people about all this stuff. Yeah, you know, there's sort right. of a friendly reminder about the documents I signed. And then they just, they're like, Hey, you know, you're back next summer. So we'll see you next May or something like that. And then you're just, you're back, you're back in school. That's awesome. It's, it was, it's kind of weird, but yeah. you know, my understanding is that even now the agency has started to do that kind of recruiting even younger, um, like freshman year, uh, because, it's just increasingly difficult yeah. to get people like if you, oh yeah, how many tw- how many twenty one year olds at the University of Texas Austin could really pass a lifestyle poly? Exactly. And, no, you get them you early. Know, that makes so much sense yeah. to get in there early yeah. before they make too many mistakes. Um, That's right. Yeah, like, That's hey, right. if you want to come here, this is what you want to do. Like this is how you this is this is your path. It's on it's, it's on you to you know to screw it up or not. Um, and as do you remember the first thing that you worked on back there? Um, and were you were you surprised? Was it like oh yeah, this is kind of what I what I thought I'd be doing this summer? Or what was it? What was that like? You know, uh, so I worked on Syria pretty much the whole time I was there. Yep, they and- put me. Yeah, exactly. They. <laughs> They put me on on that account uh, from from day one, and I pretty much worked it with a few exceptions up until the time I left. I did a brief rotation in the counterterrorism center, um, and I know you'll know this topic well, but there was a pretty significant flow of foreign fighters, you know, in the midst of the Iraq war who would fly into Damascus, and then the Syrian regime would sort of look the other way, or in some cases actually help facilitate it, and then they would smuggled through these rat lines into Iraq. And so I did some work for a while on trying to target that, that flow. Um, but for the most part, I was working, working on Syria and, you know, I, I will say like my, my perspective on the agency, I don't think I would have had words for it at the time. Um, but in reflecting on it and writing the books, <clears throat> like I've come to this perspective, this perspective. And, and I think this is probably true of a lot of big organizations, but I think it's in particular true of, CIA is it's like a uniquely bipolar place. Like you have this weird bureaucratic government side of things that would be really familiar to a lot of people who work in big companies, right? You've got endless email and meetings and all that garbage and weird stuff that comes with it being secretive and being, you know, Mm. the government. It's like, you know, uh, the story I like to tell. And then on the other side, well, just to paint the picture is like, you have this crazy mission where you have an agency that's doing insane things that I think in many cases match or exceed what we even see in fiction. Mm. And so, and you have all that together at once, which is a really weird and oftentimes in the same day. So I, I distinct, I have distinct memories of going into a basement room and seeing footage from a surveillance drone that was like mind blowing mm. and then going upstairs and there weren't staplers. Yeah. Like, and you're like, how is it that an organization that can do what I just saw in the basement yeah. doesn't have the ability to really effectively procure office supplies? Yeah. You know, and like both of those things would happen like with some consistency. And so I really love the place, but even as a you know younger person, I I I thought that was just a really kind of getting to the core. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can talk about CIA, but if you want to talk about it from a institutional perspective, like that's, that's what it felt like to me a lot. It's like, I'm involved in this really amazing mission. And at the same time, there's all this sort of actual procedural bureaucratic stuff. And so in the, in the books, I, I, I think 
and it's sort of carried through of like trying to trying to show an agency that's dealing with both of those at the same time. Yeah, man. Service isn't just what Navy Federal Credit Union does. It's who they are. That's why Navy Federal created tools to help you earn and save more. Make your financial goals a reality with great rates and low fees. Members enjoy earnings and savings of $473 per year by banking with Navy Federal. An average credit card APR that's 6% lower than the industry average. A market-leading regular savings rate nearly two times the industry average. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash offers. I've been a member of Navy Federal since I enlisted in the Navy in 1996 and have had nothing but positive experiences with them for what is now closing in on 30 years. Wherever we were stationed, whether at home or abroad, Navy Federal was by our side. Navy Federal has made it their mission to help military members and their families tackle home ownership. With their new no-refi rate drop option, you can buy a home now. And if rates drop later, you can then lower your rate without refinancing. Plus, they also offer mortgage options with zero down payment. So you don't need to wait years to save at Navy Federal. Our members are the mission. Find out more at NavyFederal.org. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, membership required, equal housing lender, open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. NavyFederal.org. Did you know, did they, were they specifically looking for uh, analysts to focus on Syria and then are looking in, in universities around the country for people that they can either uh, kind of mold during their last couple of years of school to focus on that so that you have more of a foundation coming in? Or was that, yeah. were, were other people in your class focused on other areas of the world or was a significant portion of you focused on Syria? A significant portion of us, we really all, because we came through that that recruiter who ran the Middle East mm. analytics shop, um, we all ended up getting put on accounts related to the Middle East. So one of my buddies did Egypt for a while. I had another buddy do Iran. And, you know, I think the theory, like, I think the CIA basically, and this is a gross oversimplification, but basically hires for kind of two types of profiles, when you, especially when you talk about analysts. You go out and you find people who have been doing something for a long time and have mm. a ton of experience and, you know, they, they, their PhD is in Russian history and they speak Russian and, you know, they've, they wrote their thesis on it and they lived for three years in Russia. Like go find that person to work on Russia. Right. The other end of the spectrum is kind of where I got in, which is let's find, you know, smart young people who really want to learn and bring them in young mm-hmm. and teach them. And I think that those two things together, you know, when, when the cylinders are firing, like that's a pretty effective combination um for an analytic unit because you're really getting a lot of different perspective you're getting that perspective of experience then you're also getting people who are like hey i'm I'm 23 but i'm actually pretty pretty smart and i can ask good questions and i'm learning and so you know you you mix that together and i think it, it generally helps yeah what was the training like after so after you do your two summers as a as an intern um then you get a i guess an employment offer a real employment offer or something yeah. like that and then you kind of is there a pipeline what do you do at that stage yeah so they they had a uh, program at the time and this is kind of pre i guess what's called agency modernization there's different ways of talking about it but a bunch of bre- reforms that happened under Brennan which which made it a little bit easier to kind of move between different types of roles but like back then 
you came in as an analyst, it was like, you were pretty much going to be an analyst. And so they sent me, I think at the time it was five months of just your, your, they disconnect you from your, your main team. Right. So I wasn't working on Syria and they literally just teach you everything about CIA, the intelligence community, writing the, the actual process of creating intelligence products, written intelligence products, briefing, things like that. Um, and you're with a class of like, I think there might've been 20 or so people and they just take you to another one of these sort of uh, anodyne facilities uh, outside on the ring of, you know, Northern Virginia and put you there for five months and teach you everything that you need to know about what it means to be an intelligence analyst. And, uh, you know, I have to say it was, it was really valuable, really valuable training because you really do want to get a deep dive into like, how do you actually write something that effectively communicates to a policymaker everything they might need to know about a particular topic in like a page and a half, which, mm-hmm. you know, to the Mark Twain comment about how, you know, I didn't have time to write you a, you know, a short, <laughs> short, letter, you a, short a long yeah. one, uh-huh. you realize actually like, you know, is, is uh, a learned skill. That oh yeah. Takes some time. You know, actually, I found that writing for Instagram, because you have 2,200 characters, has uh, when I do these history posts, uh, there's so much more I want to put in them. But guess what? I can't because right. it cuts you off at 2,200 characters. Um, so you have to figure out how to tell a story in 2,200 characters. Um, yeah. so, it's, so it's so I found it to be really uh, beneficial as just a kind of a mind exercise trying to, right. to do. And I don't necessarily do that with my my novels, but I do it for like one page executive summaries for other projects that uh, yeah. that I have out there. Like, hey, one page, uh, and I'm gonna get this out there to whoever, but it's gonna be a page because there's so many other things going on. Um, and I have to figure out how to get, where's my what's my end state, what do I want? Well, I want them to, to take what this action. Okay. How do I get them to do that in a page? How do I tell this right. story in a page for this person, for that audience? Um, so, so I found that Instagram is actually really, really useful for that, uh, as an exercise, but, uh, yeah, but yeah. it sounds like you're, but you're doing, are they talking about, uh, I guess end users and who are end users? I mean, are they case officers? Are they politicians? Is it the executive branch? Is that president's daily brief? Um, yeah. like what are they, what are they, when you're going through this five months out there, um, how are they framing what your mission is and why you're doing this and why you're figuring out how to write these? And it's not reports, right? So you're taking, doing something else as an analyst, right? It's basically like, I mean, the, the way I like to think about it is it's, it's some piece of like clandestine, it's almost like clandestine journalism in some way, right? Where you're taking in information from a whole bunch of different sources. I'm gonna write that down. Um, that's a, that's point, a good not, one right there. I'm gonna write down, that down, clandestine journalism. That's a good one. I, but I think, you know, I think I think it's true, right? There's there, there are some real parallels between the sort of process of creating finished intelligence and writing an article for, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever. Oh, yeah. You are, you're working with different sources uh, you know, when you talk about agent, the CIA and kind of all source intelligence analysis, you're talking about satellite imagery, you're talking about particular, you know, chemical signatures, depending on the intelligence question, you're talking about human intelligence, you're talking about intercepts, you know, nowadays, this is less true 15 years ago, you're talking about a lot of sort of commercially acquired bits of information, depending on the question. So you're taking all that in, and when you're talking about humans in the same way that a journalist would deal with this, you're you're, you're dealing with people who might have a variety of different uh, biases, agendas, who have a particular 
access point, right, that they, or a perspective that they bring to the question. Um, and so you're looking at all this stuff and you're basically trying to answer each piece, whether it's for the president's daily brief or, you know, it's going to, you know, the Hill for a briefing. I mean, you're basically answering like a fundamental question. You know, so the example I give is when I was working on Syria in the early days of the uprising, you know, the, the most basic question was, what's going to happen next? You know, is, is Assad going to stay or is he going to go? And so you're trying to kind of craft pieces that help readers actually think about that question and, and answer it effectively. And you're marshalling all the different available intelligence and perspectives to try to do that all in about a page and a half or two pages at most. Um, and so a lot of it is just like, how do I write and get the critical, you know, how do I have the critical thinking that and runs into the writing to be able to communicate that to, you know, the president who's going to, you know, glance at a page and needs to take the main points away. So they're, they're really beating that into you from day one. And I, I will say also just from sort of a missional standpoint, um, the fundamental thing, and this is true of the analysts as well as the case officers, pretty much as well as pretty much anyone else, is there is a real mentality around Langley of speaking truth to power and taking some glee in it, I think, too, of like, I am going to write down what's happening, why it's happening, and what it means for us. And that's going to be really stripped of any kind of value judgments or political bias. That is almost a religious creed among analysts at CIA. Uh, and they, they hammer that into you from day one. And if you include anything about, you know, certainly anything political, but anything that's almost like a value judgment, or they'll strip that out of the writing and really beat you over the head with it. That's a big piece of it as well. Yeah. Oh man, that's interesting. I was thinking also not just the Instagram, 2,200 characters. Um, but, uh, when I write for, uh, let's say, uh, an online or, or print magazine, and now they want it between 800 words and 1200 words. Yeah. And, like right, thousands good, but even eight hundred's better. Eight hundred and fifty, nine hundred is better uh, from their yeah. perspective. That's just my sense from my you know my, my the sliver of experience that I have doing that sort of thing. But so you have to now tell this story, get your points in in eight hundred to twelve hundred words, right around the nine hundred word mark um, is good. Is what I. But uh, for me, it, as a writer. I don't know if this book's going to be a hundred thousand words or 140,000 words in the uh, case of my last one. It's all about the story. So for me, that's right. I'm the story. I'm not like getting to a hundred thousand and be like, Oh, time to wrap this up. Nope. Nope. I'm going as far as long as it takes. And if it takes 105, 115, 130, whatever, or 140,000 words, like that's what it's yeah. going to be to honor the story. Cause people are trusting me with their time. They're never getting that back. And this story, all my heart and soul is going into every single word. Well, when you have 900 words to tell the same or a similar story or a take on something or whatever it is, that's very difficult for, uh, it's more difficult for me to do that than it is just to have complete hundred percent creative control. Like I do in the novels ever, however I want. And I can go on any tangent that I want. I can explore anything that I want. I can develop anything that I want. Um, uh, well, not necessarily. So when you're sending this a 900 word piece to an editor at uh, at a news organization who needs it to be concise and to the point and get it out there and flow and all the things that they need it to do right. in a certain amount of space. So that's uh, that's kind of interesting. You know, very very different mediums, obviously. But it sounds like you know you're you've got you got 
very good at that um, during this during this five months and over the time that you're at the agency and making things uh, concise and to the point and getting at getting the points in that you needed to get in in a, in a page. I, I will say that, and I agree with you that, you know, in some respects, if you are a fantastic analytical writer and communicating things very crisply and concisely in like eight or 900 words, and that's the medium, you know, because you're a great writer of that doesn't really translate over into writing a novel, right? Because there's so much, you, you're not really dealing with a lot of character, you know, in those, uh, in, in those short pieces. But I will say it, it does give me an appreciation for um, how wonderful it can be when you find this right, when you find an economical way to get in and out of a scene, for example, like, how do I, how do I get the reader into the setting and then moving, you know, you have to have precision of language and you have to have a sense of how do I do this in an economical way without bogging things down? Like all of, all of those lessons from the analytical writing, I think have carried over well into writing fiction, but yeah, I mean, if you try to take the toolkit and just apply it over, you know, you'll end up with some really dry, awful writing that is (laughs) going to be, artificially constrained and have no soul, you know? Um, and you can't, you gotta let the, you gotta let the kind of world, you gotta dig down and find the world or, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. Like it's not, um, you kind of can't, can't box it in. I've found at least. Yeah. Did they take you and and put you in different departments for a a week or two weeks as part of your training? So you could see what other parts of the the CIA are doing, what other departments are doing to give you a general idea of what the organization is doing as a whole to make you better at your job. They do. They did a little bit of that, uh, not as much as they should have, I would say. And my sense now, I mean, although I don't, uh, you know, my sense from people who are still inside is that it's gotten a little bit better in recent years. Like there was some sense that, you know, the parts of the agency, and there's a lot of debate on this, right? But the parts of the agency that were functioning, you know, pretty well, like counterterrorism center, you know, dealt with. They, they put a lot of different types of people together to solve a common problem. And there was some overlap and sort of fluidity there. Um, I think the overall agency is kind of getting better at understanding that, you know, this crazy stovepipe of mm-hmm. analysts, case officers, support tech, you know, um, with really kind of hard barriers between those was not particularly effective for achieving the overall mission. Um, so I think, I think it's getting better in the training programs, but, you know, I mean, it's probably a whole separate set of conversations, but I, I do think there's a lot of a lot of ground that could be covered there, right? I mean, there's probably a lot of room for improvement when it gets down to like how do you how do you deal with the right amount of crossover and information sharing in an environment like the agency where you also need compartmentation to, mm-hmm. you know, protect assets and protect yeah. sources and methods. Like it's it, it's a tough balance to get right. Yeah, it seems like. At, in the early stage, it'd be beneficial to put you um, somewhere for a month and you're in this department for a month, this department for yeah. a month, this department for a month. Hey, is that part of that, that, uh, that part, not part of that five months, but, but you add a few months to it and now, okay, yeah, it takes a little longer, but you're still bringing in, in people, you know, uh, to different classes all the time. And, uh, and now you have an appreciation for, oh, now I know what these guys do over here. Instead of working there for 20 years and being like, <laughs> what are those, what are those weirdos do over there? Like, that's right. And now well, you know, you're like, oh, now I see what these guys do in the, whatever, the technology and whatever space. Like, 
ah, got it. I, I remember this before. Someone told me before in a conversation, but now I've worked with them and I've been there for a month. I have a personal relationship with whoever else, whoever in there, appreciation for what they do and, and all that. It just seems like it would be um, make the organization stronger as a whole. You can get read in and out of secret programs. People get read out and in and out of secret right. programs all the time. Um, so it's, it sounds odd that they wouldn't uh, wouldn't do that. It seems such like such a, a natural thing to do to make the organization stronger as a whole. We were, we were getting good at it, like um, in a lot of the Middle East accounts, we were getting good at like, okay, analysts, even if you're not going to go and, you know, be an analyst in station or whatever in XYZ country, like do a four month TDY out there mm-hmm. to like actually get to know, not only just to be in the country, which has blindingly obvious, you know, good sense to that, but like to actually get to know the people in the station, right? So that you don't, you know, have this sort of... Um, 10,000 mile screwdriver dynamic of, you know, the people at headquarters or don't really understand what's going on in the station and are trying to turn the crank on a place that, you know, is, is functioning to a, you know, very different, uh, very different beat. Like we were pretty good at that. And then I will say that like the reason I got introduced, you know, ended up doing that rotation of the counter terrorism center was like got introduced to it in that training program. Of, like I actually went and sat with the officers there for a month or something like that, you know, six weeks. Yeah. Um, and you get to know people, right? And those connections become the thing that, like, a couple of years later, I I know four or five, six people down there, and they're like, "Well, come over here and work for a while." It, it facilitates that kind of crossover, which you know, like in any place, really comes down to who you know, people you know, and relationships that you've built up. So it, we were getting the agency was okay at that. I think it's it's gotten better, but yeah, I mean, I don't know what it was like in the seals, but th- there was a lot of. There's a lot of crazy bureaucratic stuff at, at the oh, CIA yeah. where you kind of scratch oh. your head and be like, I just, none, none of this makes any sense and we all know it. And yet it's the way it works, you know? It's a huge organization, which uh, by definition, yeah, gigantic exactly. bureaucracy. Um, but uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll get this, you know, the, the gist of this will be right. But I, I believe one of the couple lead people uh, at RAND during Vietnam had never been to Vietnam, I believe. Um and that's, uh, that's unsurprising to me. Yeah. 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 But uh, I'll have to go back and look exactly. I was doing some, some research not too long ago. So, so that's the general gist of it anyway. And, and Rand was commissioned, of course, to you know, answer a question and uh, do it the way they, they do it. And uh, especially back then, and they're, I think they're based out of Santa Monica. And, and uh, but I think the lead, one of the, one of the main guys hadn't been there. Some one of them had, but I think one of the other kind of the, the juxtaposition hadn't anyway, there, there there's something like that, which, you know, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to to me to work on something or be the subject matter expert on uh, Russia or Syria or Iran or Brazil or whatever else, and uh, having never been there, seems bad. That's odd. Maybe yeah, so. and it's you know it's it's sort of doubly hard, and it's this trap that I think you know the agency gets it gets into across you know really all cadres, right? Like case officers, analysts. It's like you get to the hard target countries where presumably you want your best people you oftentimes have this issue of like, well, you have the pipeline or sort of the the funnel of humans who have a bunch of experience either there or working closely on it or the language like starts to whittle down, you know? Um, If we had had some kind of abundant need to, you know, have a crack team of people working on, you know, Italy, we'd have tons of people who have (laughs) immense travel experience there. But like when you get to uh, like, you know, I mean, North Korea would be a great example. You all, you're all of a sudden like, well, we want our best people working on this issue. And yet the number of people we have who would be really 
highly qualified to do it is just yeah. narrow. So it's just, it's, it's a tough problem to solve. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I almost went to North Korea, um, in right before September 11th, I was set to go okay. for, I think it was a month and it was, um, yeah, it wasn't like a secret or anything like that. It was like an you know, overt thing. You're going in right. and you're, you're going there. It was part of a program type thing with, with a link to, um, uh, I think the, the link was uh, remains of U.S. Um, service members from the Korean War. But uh, anyway, it was an exchange. Yeah. And then I had a couple other things on the side that I was supposed to um, be looking for to report on when I got back. But then September 11th happened, complete shift, boom. And, but I was looking forward to that. I was really looking forward because I didn't know anybody who'd been to North Korea. I didn't even know it was a right. thing until they asked me to, to, to go and be part of this group that was going to go and you're staying at a you know, hotel or whatever, but I was really interested in going and, and would have been in the fall of 2001 is when I would have gone. Then they had to sub in Dennis Rodman to take your spot after. Is that what he did? I, that's right. Didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I do remember him going over there at, at some point. And did Jimmy Carter go too? I think. I think he. I. I it. It seems like he would have. Gone. Hey, yeah. Anyway. Um. So, but it's. It's all. It's all. Uh, it's all very. Yeah. All very interesting. Um. And what's uh? So you go through this pipeline. How how many years were you at the agency? I was there for eight, including the internships, and then I left in. I guess I would have left in the spring, early summer of 2014. So I've been out for almost 10 years now. Okay. And what was during that time? Um, how long did you go? Did you, you went, you said you went to Syria for a little bit? Damascus yeah, Station. I was in Damascus station. That's right. Yeah. No, I, I worked Syria extensively, both from Langley and, and the field, let's say. Um, what was it and, like going over there when you finally got and, to the So I was there, like my, my time there ended literally a month before the uprising started. So I, I left, I was like wheels up early February of 2011 Yeah, was my like last couple of weeks there. Um, and, you know, I will honestly say I, I loved Damascus. I loved Damascenes. I loved being in Syria. Like it's just, it was, it was one of those places that, there's a certain magic and charm to it. It has this very feeling of this very sort of eternal city. Um, I just fell in love with the place and and the people. And uh, I, you know, it was, it was interesting being there in that time because we were kind of sort we were starting to watch the beginnings of what became, you know, the Arab Spring. Like we were a couple months in. I think to me, I think Ben Ali had fled and Mubarak was under pressure at the time. And, you had this sense actually in Damascus of like, honestly, I remember watching the night of the camels. If you remember that scene in Tahrir Square where they were, where the uh, Mubarak's brought guys in on camels and they were beating protesters. I remember actually watching that from Damascus and looking at the eye, like in the Syrians who were in the restaurant, you could just see like this kind of thing starting to change of like, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Because the the region had become so ossified, so just kind of stuck. I mean, you had a lot of these those guys running these countries had been there for decades, or their families had been there for decades. There was a real political stasis, and you just kind of feel that starting to bubble up. And it was, um, man, it was a it was a wonderful experience to be there and to see that and to to kind of feel the beginnings of it. And of course, obviously, things ended up tilting and going in a very dark direction, but. Um, you know, I, I'd love to, I don't know if I'll ever be able to go back, um, but I, I hope that someday, you know, I'll be able to to go back to that city because I just love it. And one of the reasons why 
you know, I wrote, I wrote the book was, I just fell in love with the place. What was, what surprised you the most after having studied that region for so long, that country in particular for so long, and then to get over there on the ground, was there anything that stood out to you? Is like, wow, I got this right from afar or man, I had this wrong or, Hey, well, this was surprising. I never anticipated this. Um, what were some of your impressions once you actually put boots on the ground? You know, one of the things that I think we had some intellectual understanding of, but it was limited and and probably not as visceral as actually being there is that you know there is a tremendous difference it's been building up over time between the cities and the countryside and areas around them and we kind of we knew that or there were a lot of different factors for that there'd been a horrible drought out in eastern syria and so people had come in from uh from that part of the country to kind of settle in these shanty towns around the cities and you know, driving through those areas, you would just, you were struck by the sense of destitution that was almost spiritual, right? Like it was so deep and felt, you could feel it when you were there that you know, no amount of working on the topic from afar, right, would have ever made you feel the way you felt when you could see this contrast between the way that the well-connected in Damascus and Aleppo lived and the people who were literally, you know, half a mile away from them in these other suburbs. And I think there was, that's one of those things of like, you kind of get it in your head, but then you're there and you can really feel it. And it gives you a sense of how motivated a lot of these people will be if given the opportunity to try to change things because their lives are just so, you know, politically, economically, you know, they're just got a boot on them. Um, that feeling was really raw when I was there. I remember that one distinctly from traveling around the country. Yeah. Is there anything that you, uh, actually, before we do that, give us the one pager on Syria. Like if you're, if someone's like, what was going on over there? What's the, what's the background when you have to, when someone finds out that you're a, uh, a, uh, regional expert in, uh, Syria, what uh, I'm a novelist now. So I, I'm going to give you, I, I'm going to give you the 30 page version. Okay. I can't possibly do it in a page anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, so gosh, I, I specifically requested easy questions for this conversation. Uh, <laughs> paragraph, paragraph, like, uh, yeah, I, you know, um, the country has been in some version of a civil war that's gone from hot to cold and back again, you know, since 2011, um, it really began, you know, when I was working on it and, and, you know, the tail time, tail end of my time living there, like it really began as a relatively peaceful uprising against the Assad family and the Assad regime, which had been in, you know, been in power in Syria since 1970. Um, there, you know, it, it began like a lot of these do where it's calls for, you know, economic reforms and political reform and more dignity, you know, things like that. And Syria, you know, much like, Iraq and, and Lebanon, its neighbors, has this very complicated ethnic and sectarian mix that makes mass uprisings difficult to prevent from sliding into, okay, the organizing principle here is ethno-sectarian, and so it gets, you know, fragmented really quickly. And, and Syria, what ended up happening was you basically had a break of, you know, Sunni Arab protesters who were, you know, rising up against a largely, it, it, you know, 
a largely Alawite dominated security and military apparatus. Alawites are a sort of Shia offshoot that live in the mountains of northwestern Syria. Um, and the Assad family are Alawite. And it became a, you know, it just rolled into basically a, you know, civil conflict and then eventually, you know, a civil war. And the country essentially fragmented across a number of different axes. Um, but, you know, there's still pockets of the Northwest that are not controlled by the government. And I think it's sort of probably hard for people here in the States to even comprehend, but I mean, essentially the, the country disintegrated. I mean, you had half of the, of the population is either displaced or has fled. You know, you had hundreds of thousands of deaths, tens of thousands of more people disappeared, you know, use of chemical weapons on the battlefield, you know, infamously. Um, and, you know, a place that's like the poverty rate, depending on how you calculate it, is probably like 90% of the population now. I mean, it's essentially run, the country is essentially like, to think of it as a country, like you look at it, a map of the world is not right. I mean, it's a set of different fiefdoms run by warlords. Um, and, you know, one of the primary exports now is Captagon, which is an amphetamine that's being produced by the Assad regime uh, and sold abroad, essentially the drug trade. So it is a, you know, completely broken place. I mean, it's not that there there is some semblance of order, but it's just it's broken down into fiefdoms now. And the civil war is more or less, you know, stalled. I mean, Assad hasn't one really, but he hasn't lost. And a lot of the others, you know, a lot of the rebel groups have indeed lost. So um, it's very sad what's happened. And that was longer than a page. You can tell that. Oh, no. Man. Yeah. No, what a, I mean, it's, it's such a confusing part of the world for people over here yeah. that then see uh, our government taking um, either, either whether it's tax dollars or, you know, aid or whatever we're doing. Um, People are like, wait, what? What's going on over there? I saw some right. things about it like 10 years ago, but is that still going on? Or what? It's right. just, you know, it's not front and front and center. Time to get back training in case I get a field this fall, as I've been doing a lot more writing than I've been doing working out lately, which is why I was so fired up for this care package from First Form. I tried the protein meat sticks right away and absolutely love them. Protein meat sticks from First Form are similar to protein bars as far as benefits. First Form protein meat sticks are a delicious and very convenient way to get more protein throughout the day. Protein is essential to any health or fitness goal. No other meat stick like it on the market, packed with a full 20 grams of protein in each stick and only 200 calories or less total. It comes in five incredible flavors, original smokehouse, seasoned barbecue, Cajun style, jalapeno heat, and breakfast sausage. Great for a snack at the office, in the car, on a hike, or anywhere you're on the go. Check them out. I've also been drinking the Opti Greens 50 from First Form. Opti Greens 50 is a precisely formulated greens superfood powder meant for overall immune system support and digestive health. 50 hand-chosen ingredients in precise and effective amounts with non-GMO and non-synthetic superfoods that provide a well-rounded blend of vitamins plus antioxidant-packed ingredients for overall immune health support and defense against toxins in the air and in the foods we eat to keep us as healthy as possible all year long. Go to firstform.com slash Jack Carr. That's the number one S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com slash Jack Carr to receive free shipping on any orders over $75. Once again, that's firstform.com slash Jack Carr. 
Um, did they tell you when, when something that you wrote was going to end up in the president's daily brief or, and did they come to you and say, Hey, uh, either he or the national security advisor or whoever is, is really interested in this. Uh, but you need to expand on it a little bit because they're going to ask this question or something like that. Do they come and tell you, or do they come after the fact and like, Hey, that thing you wrote a week ago, made it into the brief and here, here's some follow-up questions or something like that. The answer is it could go both ways. I mean, so sometimes there would be a, uh, an article actually tasked like someone someone who receives the PDB, you know, let's say the Secretary of Defense or the National Security Advisor would, would have a question, right? And they would ask that question to a briefer, and the briefer would bring that back, and it would land on land on my desk or someone on my team's desk, right? So that's one way it could happen. Another way is we would actually initiate a lot of these, where you know we would see something happening, like a topic, where like, hey, this needs this this clears the bar, like the president should read this. And that, as you can imagine, is an intensely bureaucratic process to figure yeah, who's out. Who's deciding what, that? How long does that take? There's a whole, you know, there's a whole shop um, at Langley. I think it's now rolled under the DNI in some capacity, but for the long time, for the longest time, it was on the the CIA at the CIA. I think it, I think it was on the seventh floor, um, where uh, you know they would basically there was an editor of the PDB, like it was a newspaper, right? And they would sort of figure out based on articles that had been written months earlier, the general kind of flow of the PDB over the past few weeks, like what, or just frankly what the president was interested in, mm. what articles should go in on any given day. And if the PDB has changed, you know, it kind of changes president to president a little bit. Um, but, you know, they were like maybe 10 articles that would be in the main book. And then the briefer could decide to pull in other things. So like that happened also is I might've written something that's a little bit longer form and the briefer might put that in and leave that behind, you know, for, for one of the national security principles or something like that. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a goofy, a goofy process and man, it really actually oftentimes sucked to be the one on tap to write one of those things, because I think there were uh, eight or nine levels of review yeah. You would you were almost always going to stay there until very late at night and not infrequently you would find out at like one in the morning that they had decided to cut the article. Yeah. I you imagine. know, and and then you would just you know so you're like, "Ah, I've been there are worse things that have happened, but you're you're like sitting there, you know, eating something out of the hot dog machine downstairs and you know, you find out that they cut it." So, it's a it's a bit of a bizarre process, but you can Articles can make it in in any number of ways. And certainly when Syria was hot, you know, we were writing them, you know, two, three, four times a week. Yeah. It seems like that briefer, does a, does a briefer work hand in hand with that editor then? Like what's that? Yeah. That, yeah. It seems like a very powerful position, positions to be in, yes. figure out like, oh, he does, he needs to see this. He doesn't need to see that. Like that seems pretty. It's strange. very hard to figure out like where, what should, what makes the bar, what doesn't. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can, I mean, you can essentially shape U.S. foreign policy by what you decide to include <laughs> and what you decide not to. And yeah. Like you could be yeah, very Machiavellian very, about that. It seems like you could be very Machiavellian about that and put like over time, like slowly, just like subversion. Like you could subvert that document. It seems by like let's say you want to focus on Syria and let's say not on Iran or not on Brazil yeah. or whatever else. And hey, you're that editor and that briefer, and maybe that's maybe that's your background. Maybe maybe that's 
where you came from. So you're naturally more inclined to put that stuff in. And and, well, what happens down in Honduras and Brazil or Cuba or Mexico, maybe that's not your thing. And so uh, I don't know. So maybe there's, there's, it's, it just seems like there's a way for that either that document to be subverted consciously or unconsciously just because of your background. Very interesting. Totally. I mean, you know, the big fight we had was in early to mid 2011, you know, the, the Obama administration really wanted it to be true that Assad and his regime were sort of just going to fall, that it was pretty much inevitable and that it would be not bloodless, but close, <laughs> you know, it would be relatively straightforward. Like they desperately wanted that to be true. And a lot of the pieces that we were writing, whether it was about the emergence of an insurgency uh, or whether it was about the staying power that Assad and his regime had, right? Those pieces were not particularly welcome mm-hmm. in the administration at that time. And there was, I think, a lot of pressure um, at Langley, or you know, some of it was probably just self-generated to kind of how do we introduce these topics? And so we would write, you know, sometimes you'd write PDBs and you'd go through that process and then the editor might cut it. And on the team, you're kind of thinking, do we just not want to go down there with bad news? You know, because you don't, to some degree, you're in this weird world of like, we need to speak truth to power, but we also want the access. And if you're sending pieces down day after day that kind of crap all over a president's foreign policy agenda, Mm they start to not want to read them and they don't want to listen to your briefer and they want to tell you to pound sand. They'll go talk to somebody else to get their Syria analysis, you know, um, because they don't have to read it. They don't have to listen to you. Um, you know, I think when you're working at CA, you think, or you get into this kind of myopic, you know, worldview where you're like, Oh, I'm working on the most important things in the world. And the, you know, the president's looking to me and to us for our opinion. Yeah. They're getting stuff from you know from everywhere. You know, they're getting it from random people who swing in for conversations or from the news. And you know, so you're competing with all of that information. And so, yeah, to your Machiavellian point, you know, I think they're probably, uh, although maybe not many uh, occupants of the, the that editor's chair, the seventh floor would admit it. I mean, there's you know, you're sort of probably picking your battles and trying to figure out how do I put a, together a PDB that doesn't like piss the president off today. You know, we don't want that necessarily. So yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that because it's uh, you could also be trying to build political capital for something else. Uh, 100%. Yeah. You know, I, I, that's fascinating. I guess I didn't realize that there was a briefer every day in my mind because I think there's a book called The President's Daily Brief, the PDB that I've been meaning to read for a while. Yes. David, um, my um, friend, David Priest. Wrote okay. it. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very much worth the conversation and he'd be a good yeah. guy for you to have a conversation with because yeah. he goes through the whole history of it in and out and like it's just it's it's fascinating you know for a topic that's like literally the the book little piece of paper that get put in front of the president every day it's like a very fascinating colorful history oh yeah and i can imagine because i didn't realize there was a briefer i thought that it like it would it was like a newspaper ish thing that it would be there for his coffee in the morning or something and if he had a question like the national security advisor would be there like waiting yeah. for him and be like hey so you really need to pay attention to this today like there was at least a there might be a filter there depending on the president or maybe somebody some president might just want to read it as it is without anybody else's analysis yet or anybody else's like hey pay attention to paragraph three this yeah. That my understanding was that that what you're describing was very much how Barack Obama took the PDB is like he was a reader. He wanted to kind of just sit. He he was learning by reading. Right. And he did not have these 
again, my, you know, hearing this through the grapevine, he didn't have these kind of boisterous conversations like George W. did. There was like a whole group of people who would go, it, you know, 9 or 9.30 in the morning, they'd have most of the national security principals, the CIA briefer, you know, who were all in the room going through the PDB together and having a conversation about it. And things would come out of that, you know, pretty free flowing discussion, you know, taskings for covert action work. Here's a follow up question or let's, you know, we should talk to this, you know, world leader about this. My sense is that the Obama administration was a little bit more reserved in that respect. Right. So there's there's like a different atmosphere to these things, depending on the president. Um, And yeah, it's a. you know, that that briefer is that was a big job. I mean, that was something that, you know, you you weren't like one of the more senior people in the building, but usually you became one after or you were a few steps away from it. If you had right. that job like that was that was a stepping stone to write a passage that you needed to yeah. uh, fulfill yes. in a, in yes. a way that, uh, that maybe presented the agency some accolades or like, hey, this guy's this guy squared away. Like, um, let, let's bring him up and move him up. Or, oh, my gosh, that guy's a disaster. That girl's a disaster. <laughs> like, uh, you know, move them aside. Like, they're not going to do well in that next position or something like that. That's, but, well, and, you know, it's I mean, if you're like, you know, the ones I remember from the the George W. days, like they're in the room for those conversations six days a week like you're getting this really rare view of you know the policymaking process the national security principles how intelligence fits in um so you know that tended to be a job for the for the best and brightest or who you know whoever the agency thought were the best and brightest would would do that work be really interesting to cross administrations and see two you know be the same briefer uh and you know brief one president then the next just to see the difference uh that would be really interesting uh seems like there'd be some high burnout though in that position yeah well you're also the president i guess you're up i mean you know at least when i was doing it those briefers showed up at midnight and they were there overnight they go do the briefing in the morning and then they come back and do some more work I go home and sleep a little bit in the afternoon. You know, they're doing that six days. I mean, so it's kind of, you're the one, you're the face of the agency. So you're the one, if something's wrong, you're kind of the one getting, yeah. you know, shoot the messenger kind of a situation. So right. I, I don't think people, it was a tiring role. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Did you ever get word back that, uh, or you hear through the grapevine, it might be in the PDB book. Um, and I definitely need to need to read um, that say some president, we heard that some president in the 70s, 80s didn't even read the thing. Or something yeah. like that. Then he come back like, why are we doing this? We we keep hearing that he doesn't even read it. You know, <laughs> somebody else to read it and you know, pick out the points, or or maybe he doesn't even do that or something. Along my that. my favorite, I think that's definitely true. I mean, my my favorite piece of feedback because the the briefers would put together these notes afterward to try to let you know the analysts and everyone else know what had been the reaction to a piece. And my favorite bit of feedback was um, read with interest, which which they would which basically meant. We don't know if they read it. We didn't talk about it. They might have flipped the page, read with interest. So whenever you got read with interest, you knew that was probably a miss, or maybe they were just like, okay, Syria, I'll have national security advisor deal with that. I'm not going to read that. You know, next. Let's yeah. keep moving. What would it say? Um, it would be the, the kind of clue that, oh, he's interested in this. That's right. Yeah. Well, exactly. What let you know that there was interest? Was there like a grunt at a particular yeah. paragraph yeah. or, you know, it seems like a polite way of saying like, uh, we're going to move on from this topic, you know, like <laughs> right. read with interest. Yeah, that's, a- that's right. That's exactly right. 
Who's interested? Oh, so you're telling me there's a chance. You're telling me there's a one chance. One in a million. What's yeah. all this one in a million? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, my goodness. That is wild. Did anything ever happen where they wanted you or another analyst to um, – to actually go to the White House, like you see in the movies, you know, like, oh yeah, get that analyst in here, get Jack Ryan in here right now. You know, I want to talk to talk to him. And then Jack Ryan goes in and says, sir, boom, boom, boom. And off they go into a, some grand adventure. There were certainly not me, but there were people who had they tended to have grayer hair than I did at the time, <laughs> who had been around for a while and who um in particular on topics like Iraq and Afghanistan back in the day, who like had become known to the administration, you know, so my sense is that happened to some degree, but like the agency actually kind of jealously guards that, like who goes down and all. it's, it's a whole, as you can imagine, that's another like awful process. Cause if, um, if there was going to be a Syria briefing in the oval, you know, that's the kind of stuff that that'll get you your, you know, if you're a 13, you might get your 14 based off of that going well. Like that's a good little, you know, notch in your belt. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a lot of fighting in the background over who gets to go do those briefings. Cause there's just not that much time yeah. at the end of the day in the oval, right. With the president, like that's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. um, so we ended up with a lot of times you would have, as also happens in large organizations, uh, the, a slightly more senior manager who may not know the details all that well would get up to speed over the course of a few days yeah. uh, and then go do the briefing, you know? So that dynamic happened as well. Man. And then what, uh, what was there any uh, time when you were there or sense that you've just paid attention to what's going on in Syria with, uh, with us forces involved. You hear read things about Russian mercenaries and Wagner group and, you know, all these things that sound like a, a novel and all this, these, did anything like that happen while you were there or since you've been out that you read in like, you know, the times or you know Washington post or whatever you're, whatever you're reading these days, um, where you're like, Oh, interesting. I do, I, I do, uh, I can't claim credit for this. So one of my former colleagues who's written a, uh, recently passed sadly but wrote a wonderful trilogy of books um jason matthews he wrote red sparrow and palace of treason um the Kremlin's candidate former cia guy he said once he's like you know what vladimir putin does a pretty good job of giving me plot ideas uh like it, it really is true and i think it's probably you know true for for your books as well that some of the craziest stuff and some of the best ideas come like the germ of that if not the whole thing you can find it in reality, you know? Um, and I've actually had things that I put in the novels that were true, that my editor was like, no one will believe, you know, this is like, it's too, it's, it's almost too outlandish. Like you can't put this in. Everyone th don't think it's made up. It's like, well, no, that's actually true. Mm -hmm. um, so I do find that the best inspiration for plot and frankly, a lot of times for character comes from, reality, you know, it's from observing what's going on, you know, in, in the case of our novels in the secret world, you know, um, those are like the best ideas. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so U S involvement in, in Syria, did you, do you have any touch points with that or since looking back, are there things that you piece together that you, that you, that you read about and say, ah, I think this is really what's going on over there just based, uh, maybe not, but. Awesome. Yeah. I I'll say like after having, um, after having had access to a lot of all the classified stuff on Syria while I was inside and then seeing what was out there in the press, I think very, I mean, it kind of makes me sad to say it, but it's made me 
Um, and it's really kind of independent of the media outlet, right? This isn't a comment on like mainstream media or anything. It's just literally like, if you're reading something in the open source press, like you are not getting the full story, almost full stop. There, there is other stuff going on behind the scenes that you're just missing because you don't, you don't have access to it. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I think that's the case with, you know, Russia, Ukraine. I think it's the case with Syria back in the day, Syria now. I mean, I just, when I read, you know, something in a random, you know, Times or Fox or whatever it might be on Syria, I always kind of go back to thinking about the gap between the intelligence and the press reporting back in the day and just think like, what am I what am I missing? I know I'm missing something. And I'll be honest with you being out now, it kind of bothers me because I feel like I know that there's some other kernel there and I just don't know exactly. I can kind of, especially on Syria and Middle East, I can kind of piece it out a little bit better. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was actually one of the challenging things about the Russia book was like, I kind of knew as I was reading things, there's stuff I'm missing. Yeah. And, you know, how do I try to plug those gaps? It, it's kind of maddening for somebody who, took a lot of pleasure out of having, you know, out of knowing what was going on in the background. Yeah. You know, the first time I realized that I think was 2006. I mean, there's times when nothing makes the news that you're involved in and that's, you yeah. know, feel like that's kind of normal because you're in that doing things in that world. But then when something that you're involved with does make the news. And I remember being in, uh, it was when I was attached to the agency and seeing a, I believe it was CNN um, the next day on TV in our little room there that we we're working working in, and they put the camera like on the ground, and so that the uh, the, the the brass, so like like five five six and seven six two, like were littering this street because we were in this firefight the night before, and so they can't they put put the camera on the ground to, to look at those, and then you know go up through the street and buildings and and all that stuff, and it talked about what went on there that the night previous, and it wasn't like close. I mean, I was like, so in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, what else have I been reading all these years? Because I, I try to, you know, take in as much news as I can and just try to be as informed as I can to be an informed citizen. And back then, so I can make better decisions on the battlefield or whatever. But, right. it's, uh, but in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I, <laughs> I, I? I'm missing probably a lot on every story. So that was when it really, uh, you know, popped out to me that uh, things that I hear in the news, uh, there's probably a little more behind the scenes. Yeah. No, it's, it's a hundred percent true. And, you know, the, I, the only way that I've found to like try to manage that now that I'm out is that is honestly finding people, oftentimes people who are still in, who will point me to select pieces of this information is close. that exist and and who will say, read, you know, kind of read this. Cause oftentimes, you know, you're, you're calling through so much information. If you're trying to get down to, mm-hmm. you know, what happened with the Prigozhin coup attempt, right? Like what, what am I supposed to take away from this? Like what sources of information do I go to? I, I found it's easier to think about it, not in terms of outlets necessarily, but in terms of there are specific people who have, who are more trustworthy and reliable on particular topics. And I'll watch them, you know, as opposed to kind of looking at it from the standpoint of, um, you know, a newspaper or media outlet where it's just going to be sort of hit or miss depending on which stringers they might have had, you know, going out and getting information or which journalist is actually typing it up, you know. Um, that's the only way I've found to be able to to kind of navigate it. And I think my, my sense is my antenna is a little bit, I kind of, I don't know, it feels like it's not as accurate as it probably once was when I was on the inside. You can do that direct comparison to your point right. of like, oh, you know, 
I actually have a specific piece of, you know, clandestinely acquired information that I trust that says X about this. And then in the press, it's like, why, you know, like, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. Oh man. And, uh, what, so why, why did you decide to get out? <laughs> yeah, I, um, sounds like you enjoyed it. I did. I, you know, I loved it. I got to a point where I thought if I don't leave, I will never leave. Mm. And I wanted at the time to kind of see what, I mean, cause I'd been in since I was you know 19 basically. Mm. And I'd been the only job I'd had since college and including during college. And I felt at the time, like I wanted to go and see what else was out there. Um, so there was, there was that sense. There's also a sense my wife and I had were in DC. It's like, we want to get out of DC. <laughs> like what's the, we, the, we kind of need an escape hatch here. We want to get out of DC. Uh, Syria at the time, to be quite honest, was like, I, I was kind of, I was very frustrated with the way that was going down. And I was basically told I was going to just keep working. And so all that stuff kind of conspired at once where I said, you know what, maybe I'll come back, but I want to go out and try something else. Mm -hmm. uh, so I left, uh, I took a consulting job, uh, which was good in some respects and awful in others. Yeah, what, and what, what, what was the consulting job again? I know we talked about it. Was it. With, uh, uh, so was I was McKinsey? a business consultant with McKinsey and company. Oh, uh, and that was a great experience, not for sleeping, uh, but it was taking a lot of the agency skill set and applying it to problems in the private sector yeah. was like satisfying for a while. And then I got to a point where I said, you know what? I just don't think I want to keep doing this either. How long did you and do that? I did that for seven years. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I did we, that when for we first a while. talked, that's what you were doing when we first talked. That's what I was doing when we first talked. Okay. And what Damascus Station came from, it, it kind of actually traces back to when I had just left the agency. I was processing Syria. I sat down for a summer and this is before we had kids, still in DC, getting ready to leave. And every day I just started writing to kind of process that experience. And I ended up with a hundred thousand words. There you, you go. You got a book. Something that that looks like a book. Now it's but time then to, when I now it's back time to edit. It's like yeah. this is not a book. Now it's time to edit. <laughs> time to edit. Uh, but then, I, so I, I wrote, I wrote that, and then the consulting job started. So I just kind of put it away. I, it was impossible to have a side hustle doing the McKinsey thing because you're working an insane amount and yeah. traveling all the time. And I got to a point where I was burned out with the consulting gig, and I took, I think, the first time you and I talked. I had actually taken six months off. Yes, that's what it was. And I was like, I'm going to go yeah. back. Yep. I'm going to pick this manuscript up and I'm going to try to turn it into uh, something that other people might want to read. <laughs> it was basically the charge I had yeah. myself. And, you know, I think having having the time away from Syria and the time away from CIA in some respects made it easier because mm. I could kind of look at the thing with some, you know, objectivity. And one of the things I had done a lot of in that time as a consultant was I actually gotten back into reading spy fiction. Mm. Like I had stopped for a while when I was at the agency. Cause I was like a lot of people do when they're inside, you like, you're struggling with this. Like you're reading these great spy novels and then you're like, well, I'm dealing with the stapler problem here. Right, you know? So like, right. I can't, uh, I don't want to read this. It's not giving me energy. And I got back into the spy fiction. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a stab at this. And so the, the writing ended up being, I, I, I 
left the consulting job a few years ago and and pretty much just writing full time now. I forget. Did you go back to it after that six months off for a little bit? I did. I did. Yeah. I went back for a year. Okay. And then because we, I finished the book in that six months, mm -hmm. I wrote it. I mean, I had the other manuscripts, I had characters and that. So I wrote it really quickly, went back to the consulting job. We tried to, the first time we tried to sell the novel, it was like, I think it was literally the second or third week of February of 2020, which as it turned out was not a good time to submit, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> submit books to the York publishers. COVID hit, things just kind of stopped. Okay. And so, you know, I was, so I was consulting for that year. And then eventually like late in the summer, found out that we'd sold it. Um, and so I was like, all right, I'm gonna, I think just kind of, you know, take a chance, right. That I can, I can do this thing and really, you know, see myself as a writer. So stop being a consultant and just started writing. Yeah. I so I, I think, back. I think the first, so Michael Davidson connected us, right. Is that that's uh, right? Yeah. Michael exactly. Davidson. Yeah. Shout out to Jen next now Alder for uh, anyone right. out there right. listening. Um, Michael Davis, what a great, what a great guy. He's just great awesome. Human. But he introduced us, I think on text. And I remember where I pulled over, I think about you every time I drive by it, because I think I was on my way to either drop, pick up, because my daughter wasn't in the car because I pulled over to talk to you. So it was on my way <laughs> to uh, into Wyoming to pick her up from camp. And uh, so on my way, spend the night in Jackson and then drive off the next day to to pick her up. But I mean, things were, I don't think my first novel had come out, but it was already, was it coming I think, out? No, I think the term, I think Terminal List was out. Was out, okay. Because, so. because I think shortly after you and I spoke, I read it. Um, But I don't, I do not think, True Believer was yeah. out. Yeah, okay. Was so it was right around there. So it's 2018. It was right around there. Okay. Yeah. And because uh, I remember there's just because I was looking because they were still busy, even though there wasn't. A, I've never not been busy. But anyway, so I'm going on there. And for a long section there, you don't have cell service. And I think we had a time set. And it was like in the middle, like between two, there's like a little dirt road. And I, every time I pass it going to that camp, um, I'm like, that's where I pulled over. And I pulled over there because it was like a bar. And so I was like, okay, well, if I, if I have this call and I keep going, I'm going to lose them. Uh, but here we go. <laughs> and I pulled in there and then we had a, we, we talked and, and, uh, and, and got to know each other a bit. And then, you know, off you, off you go to write the continue writing and, and finish it up during that six months and then back to McKinsey for a year and then bam, full-time, full-time writer. I wanted to let you know about some awesome new products launching on officialjetcar.com for the fall winter season. And these ones fire me up. What are they? I'm glad you asked. One of a kind collaborations with my friends at Origin, Triple Lot Design, Ball and Buck, Dynamis, and more. I sincerely appreciate everyone who spends time with me on the Danger Close podcast. So right now, there's a discount code for podcast listeners. Just use promo code DANGERCLOSE at checkout. Once again, go to officialjackcar.com, click on shop in the upper right-hand corner, and then use promo code DANGERCLOSE at checkout. Thank you so much. More to come. Stay tuned. How did you find your agent? How did you get it to, uh, to that stage? So my, uh, my first agent, um, I found, like, basically... My wife, so my wife was at a think tank in DC for a number of years. And one of her bosses had an agent because he'd written a couple books. And uh, that agent who also rep like David Ignatius, another mm -hmm. spy fiction writer, the agent, my old agent did pretty much nonfiction, but he did a little bit of fiction too. And so I literally through my wife's connection, emailed him and said, hey, I'm working on a, 
you know, I'm working on a novel, like I'm kind of dusting this manuscript off, former CIA. Uh, and he got on a call with me and listened to my, you know, not so great at the time elevator pitch for that novel and had some tweaks to it and some thoughts and said, basically, you know, look, it sounds like it could be interesting when you're done, yeah. send it to me and I'll read it, which doesn't sound like much, but you know, for those out oh, there who that's huge. through this whole querying process, it's huge. It's like, okay, I like get to skip the slush pile at least here and at least get an honest assessment. Um, and so I was like, great, you know, that's, I'll just, I'll just drive toward um, getting him on board. And I finished it at the end of those six months. I had a whole bunch of people around me read it, some agency contacts kind of, you know, really beat it up. And I felt like I had gotten it. Little did I know I'd have to go through several more editing stages, but I got to a point that I felt like it was perfect. And then I sent it to him and I think, you know, 10 days later or something, he sent me a note back and said, hey, I love this. I'd love to move forward with you. I've got a few thoughts, but then it was just from there off to the races. Um, so I had a really easy uh, finding the agent story. Um, but, you know, it, it was, uh, I, I got lucky. I was, very, I was very blessed to have had that connection and for him to be somebody who's like not doing a ton of fiction, but doing enough of the kind of fiction that I'm doing where he would, you know, he had an eye for it and was interested in it. Yeah. Did you, I forget, did you send it to uh, the CIA Office of Pre-Application yeah. Security Review? Yeah, I have not. I'm trying to remember. If, I don't know if I've seen this from your social media or like if you and I had a conversation about it, but you've had like crazy stories of dealing with uh, the, D the DOD censors. I, um, so the, the CIA's publication review board is really actually pretty efficient nice. and sensible, which, which are two words that you don't normally associate with the government bureaucracy. And I will say like with both novels, I have gotten responses back within two weeks and I have had, no, I know, I know. Like I, you probably want to reach through the screen and strangle me for that experience. And I, you know, I've had, I had this conversation with um, Don Bentley, who I think is similar to you gone through this wild process with the DOD, which I don't quite understand, but CIA is, is different. Like I even had with, with uh, Moscow X, you know, I refer to an entity called Russia House inside CIA. And initially they had come back and said, no, you can't. And I was like, guys, this is, actually like- is there a movie called Russia House? Well, it literally, the, the origin story there's here, House. there's a book called Russia House that got turned into uh, a movie with, with Connery. Um, you know, like it actually isn't the name of, the CIA is Russia. And like, if you look at the work charts, it's not Russia House. Um, it came from the Le Carre book. Mm. Like that's things that that's found how, those books. And, and and so I was like, guys, this isn't even on the work charts. And by the way, I, I and then I went and found another agency officer who had written a book and referenced Russia House, and her book had gone through the publication review board. And you know what? They changed their they changed their opinion. They're like, okay, you can use it. So it's like, and all of that happened within a matter of a couple couple days of just some back and forth. So it's like it's a very largely efficient process, you know. And they still do the crazy stuff where they like send it back with the blacked out highlighter. And I remember when I sent Damascus Station in, you know, I sent it in. It was like a Word document, and it came back. It was all in caps, and they had which I, 
what kind of program is doing that? I don't know. All in caps, like it was a cable or some kind. Mm-hmm. And they just, you know, the the classic kind like, of black highlighter through the stuff that you can't sag. And some of it you kind of look at and you're like, really? You're editing, you know, this uh, and not this other stuff. But, you know, it, it's, they were, you know, uh, mostly a pleasure to deal with. And uh, I have not had the experience that, that you've had. Uh, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Are you self-censoring as you go through? Or are you like, Hey, I'm sending this in. So there's no need for me to self-censor anything here. Um, so I'm just going to write the best book I can. I'm going to send it in and, but they take out, you know, they take out I'll appeal. If I feel like I should appeal, um, are you self-censoring or no? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I, you know, I feel, I feel like there are some things that even if I were able to get it through or, cause you know, I, I'm dealing with another human right on the other end they can miss things. Maybe they're not that good in some cases. And so I don't want to put things out there that feel irresponsible from the standpoint of sources or methods or things like that. Now, I haven't had many instances in the writing where I have had to do that, but I'll say that, you know, I've I've definitely done it a couple times in each book where I've, I've written something and then I've looked at it and I've said, I probably shouldn't, you know, um, and so I take that out. But I will say on the flip side, I've also, I source the hell out of my novels before I send them to the PRB. So I like go through and I like, okay, here's where I got this. Here's where I got this. Here's where I got this. Um, A, to kind of give me confidence that it's not coming from the classified regions of my brain, but then also to kind of facilitate the process with them to show them like, hey, you know, this is actually already out there. So you telling me I can't put it in is insane. Um, and, and that has worked pretty well too. Yeah. I just gave somebody some advice the other day, a uh, guy that I work with in, in Iraq and the CIA who's getting out, um, now after a long, long run, um, and he asked me about this and I'm like, Hey, just write the best story you can like that, write the best thing you can. Yeah. You're going to send it in anyway. So, um, that's somebody else's job to take it out, you know, but write the best thing you can possibly write. Uh, right. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I told him anyway, but maybe that was bad advice. So I don't know. Text him. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, look, like I, I, let me put it this way. The things that I've taken out have never been critical to the story. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I don't, it, that would be a tough one if I felt like something really on the line from the agency standpoint is critical to the story. But luckily I haven't had to cross that bridge yet. Yeah. Um, and I, I generally, I don't know, you know, this is, I'm not, not an old hand at this by any stretch of the imagination, but I do feel like the best elements or the things that make the story resonate with readers, the, the details are an important piece of that, but it's not like at the end of the day, it's going to come down to things that are more just about basic storytelling and the craft of writing than it is about this or that secret thing. Like right. it's, I, I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I have not, I don't know. I think the, Great storytelling trumps all, right? I mean, some of those some of those details can be minimized or even fudged. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. And uh, you got some people in the back. You got Petraeus on this in here. David Ignatius, of course. Uh, Leon Panetta. I mean, you got uh, a bunch of people talking about Damascus Station, which is pretty pretty cool. The best spy novel I've ever read. General David Petraeus, right on the cover. Man, that's pretty serious. How'd you get in touch with those guys? I sent letters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I um, I had briefed them when I was inside, but I don't think they would have remembered yeah. me, put it that way. Um, 
And I'm honestly, man, I, I will say like the, the answer rate on a personal letter to somebody is relatively high. Like if you, you know, like I, I just, I wrote notes and talked a little bit about our shared experiences and sent a copy of the manuscript and to both Treas and Panetta responded back relatively quickly and saying, Hey, love to read it. Um, you know, and I felt like it'll blur a bit and they were very generous to do that. But yeah, it was, it was letters. I, I literally for, for Panetta, I didn't with Petraeus, I knew people who knew him. And so I was able to kind of get in touch that way. But with Panetta, I literally cold emailed like info at panettainstitute.org or something like that. Like his, uh-huh. his out in California and you know, I just introduced myself and like, I got in that way. It was, it was, but it was, it was all just, I don't know. I just kind of pounding the pavement and, and writing letters and, you know, making those, making those connections. Cause I had had meaningful interactions with both of them on, on the inside. Right. Um, so it, it just, it's, that's, I don't know. I don't have a better story. I just literally wrote them a letter and they wrote back. Hey, no, that's good. That, that, that works. Um, yeah. So when we're talking about classification, what do you think now that you're on the the outside? Do you put any thought into the uh, the JFK documents still <laughs> not being declassified after essentially a law that in the, in the 90s that mandated by Congress 2017? You're going to declassify all these things, and then having two administrations, both parties, in a row not declassify everything. Like, it is weird, isn't it? Yeah. Like for people that think the CIA had something to do with it. They are really going out of their way to make it seem like they did. Like if you didn't, you're really making it look like you did. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, the agency has also never cared about like, you know, I don't know. I, I guess like there's like a like a conspiratorial part of me that's like maybe we're maybe we're still trying to hold on to some of the cachet. So it makes it look uh better if we hold on to this stuff. I mean, it's very hard to wrap your head around continuing to classify information that is from the 1960s. Like people don't very... trust you already when you're having a trust issue already, like you're not, oh, ma- you're not helping that by no. walking in and having a private conversation with the president, two presidents, and then having them essentially violate the law and not declassify these last few documents. Well, that- what do you think is in there? Just out of, like, cause I, I honestly, like, That's I the whole thing. Like, you guys make yourself look very complicit in this by uh, by just not declassifying all this, and you're violating a law. Now at this point, you've been told by Congress in the right. 90s to do this, 2017. Like you have a date, you have time to prepare. Like you, and at the last second, you go in and have a private conversation with the president, and now it's not declassified. Like was, that's odd. Was this not turned over? Because I think it was like 06 or 07. It was like right when I got there they had the big like family jewels dump because Tim Wiener wrote that book legacy of ashes. He had a whole bunch of stuff in there. There was a decision made like around the publication of his book to like, I think Hayden when he was director made it to like let a whole bunch of this stuff out and declassify it, which they did. But I guess, did they hold back on specific stuff related to Kennedy? Like they just, yeah. Yeah. And their Congress mandated it in the nineties, 2017, (laughs) And comes up last second. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. And then uh, next president, okay, comes up. Oh, COVID. We haven't had time to review these documents since 1963. They're, they're too busy clearing my novels. We couldn't. We couldn't possibly have the human resources to do. That. Exactly. They're too busy working on these things. And that's right. 
Yeah, we, we were much too busy, uh, you know, working on Damascus Station in Moscow X. We can't possibly get to the the law that uh, that Congress has mandated us to do. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's just it's frustrating, and it doesn't help instill trust uh, with this organization that's having trust issues. It definitely doesn't. It also just makes me. I have. I have. Again, it kind of gets back to the comment about the agency being like weirdly bipolar. Like, I could see one angle of this where it's just so devastating, right, that that it's been held back. The other one is that it's a total letdown and there's a whole bunch of stupid bureaucratic reasons that this stuff is not getting let out. And then it's a total letdown and that the agency could care less what anyone thinks. You know, I could see either of those being true. I desperately want it to be true that there's some sensational thing in there, but I've been disappointed a lot in the past. Yeah. I mean, maybe they haven't enough time to burn documents because they're definitely like the church hearings and the Pike committee hearings uh, in the seventies. Right. Yeah. We're just going to burn these things. Uh, it, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, it's, you know, church Pike. One of the things I will say is, uh, I, it is crazy to have gone back now, especially since I've been out and to just kind of like, understand what the agency was like back in the 50s and 60s i mean that was those guys were having some fun let's put it that way i mean that was that was it was just essentially violating laws with impunity left and right i mean crazy i i think when i go out and whether it's talking about the books or the cia in general i i have to like do a lot of work to try to convince people that there really is a fault line between the agency of pre-church pike and the agency post like it's the agency was not domesticated prior to church pike you know at all like it was essentially doing kind of bagman work for for the president you know all around the world or and against it, the president shame. in one in one instance right um, right talk yeah. about alan dulles doing the exact opposite essentially of what president kennedy wanted in africa in particular That's right. other places yeah. as well but uh i mean it's it's in it's wild I mean, yeah. like today you're going, you're going to jail for those sorts of things today. Um, back then it was like, that's just what you did. And so anyway, it's, it's a fascinating history. And I like to weave it into my, my novels and um, especially the conspiratorial aspects that uh, they don't do a good job in uh, uh, countering, you know, through their PR, hence the JFK documents that are still classified after all these years. Um, yeah. It's wild, but they give me a lot to work with. I mean, there's so much history there. And then you get to kind of wonder what were in all these things, these mysterious fires that broke out here and there over the years. Some intentional, some, oh, those things have burned up in the warehouse type thing. Oh, in the classified warehouse with all the with all the fire extinguishers and and uh and uh you know all these amazing how easy it is to fire detectors documents, you know, they just they vanish. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I get to work with all that, but then I get to imagine what were it, why, why were those burned? What was sensitive in those things? Why were the, why did those things disappear? Um, then I get to work with it and fictionalize it and put it into a, a novel. Um, What's been your, uh, cause I always, I wrestle this in my books too, of like how you, cause you want there to be some groundwork of like the reader gets in and they say, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. This feels real. And then in certain points you want to like, play with the reality to make the story better or to make the plot work, you know, whatever it might be. I don't know. I'm always just curious, like, how do you, how do you balance that in books? Cause you have this grounding of authenticity and then you've got stuff like you're saying, where you sort of, you're imagining it, right. Um, you're building it into the world of the story and it's a balance, right. I don't know. I, I find that 
often when I'm drafting, I'll kind of look back and say, hey, this is like too bureaucratic and stupid and lame. I don't want it in here. And then in other cases, it's like, this is too out. This is too crazy, right? I can't, I don't want to include this because it'll stretch reality. I don't know. I kind of, I'm curious how you balance those things. Yeah, so I see what's natural. And at yeah. the end now, since from the fourth book forward, I've uh, included an author's note at the end that talks yeah. about what was real, what was not, um, about what the person just read, so that they don't. Have, so if they have those questions and they're curious, well, here it is in the author's note. Um, right. Here's here's what was real and here's what was not. So I do that now. But for me, it's all about that story. I like that foundation in authenticity. That uh, that foundation of realism, whether it's feelings and emotions behind certain things, or it's an event, or even just a name that's dropped out there um, that yeah. I for me to explore later, or for that person to have a connection with like, oh, I remember that. I remember reading about that in 1987 or whatever, 95, whatever it was. Um, so I love doing that. I love weaving uh, all those things in there um, that have a touch point with reality and yeah. uh, find it to be very natural to do that. So yeah. I, I have a great time. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to see what these, I, I, these JFK documents someday. I mean, it might be a whole bunch of nothing, you know? And then we'll be like, why did you make yourself look guilty for all this? See, that's, that's my point is it's going to be on an extreme, right? It's obviously, it's either like extremely damaging or, and wild, or it's just like a complete nothing burger. And you're like, this is almost like, this is disappointing. You know, you've gone through these years of withholding it and making people highly suspicious of your organization uh, and feeding kind of, you know, any number of conspiracy theories, uh, which, you know, are interesting because some of them are true. Yeah. You know, I'm saying like, it's, it's, I don't know. I, um, I wish I had some inside knowledge on that, but I've got, it's fascinating. And why is Alan Doris Dulles essentially running the Warren commission? Um, (laughs) that is a huge one. That's a huge one. If anyone have been on that commission, it it should be called, uh, the Dulles commission. Uh, it shouldn't really be called the Warren commission report, but to have him even on there and, and essentially just, I mean, Gerald Ford was on there too. I mean, it's really interesting yeah. back yeah. at uh, at 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 that point time in history because it was such a pivotal point. Which is why I keep going going back to it. But uh, anyway, moving forward, this latest book right here, <laughs> Moscow X, bam, right here. What um, tell us a little bit about what's going on in uh, in the latest novel? Yeah. Um, so for this one, I basically started with an imagination of what would it look like if the agency from a covert action standpoint just really took the gloves off against Vladimir Putin? Um, and so the, the title of the novel, Moscow X, comes from the fictional component in the book that is charged with kind of coming up with outside the box or highly aggressive covert action options against the Russians. And as they're planning, laying these out, they come up with an idea basically to make Putin feel as though a coup is underway without it actually being true. So it's kind of a classic whisper campaign type thing that they're trying to seed. And the officers in the novel come upon this pair of bankers in St. Petersburg who are this kind of linchpin in Putin's personal finances. And so go to work on trying to target and recruit them. And one of the bankers named Anna, um, unbeknownst to CIA, is also a Russian intelligence officer. And she's kind of this very interesting character who's playing a game like all her own. And so there's sort of a cat and mouse uh, tale that ensues from there. But, you know, as I wrote it, it kind of became, or at least I hope it becomes, um, you know, the story of like really truth and loyalty and also just revenge uh, in the middle of the real kind of shadow war between Washington and Moscow. 
Um, and that's why I played a lot of the novel, like Damascus Station deals from a kind of tradecraft standpoint with <clears throat> kind of out classic out of embassy operations. And in Moscow X, we're dealing with more uh, commercial cover, uh, exotic cover, you know, Knox, the world of, of officers under non-official cover, Knox, who um, for obvious reasons have a lot more leeway in who they can talk to and spend time with. And so most of the characters in the novel, both Russian and American, um, are, are, are Knox or the Russian version of it. So I had a lot of fun with this one. And, uh, you know, I'll say it, it, it almost killed me to write it, but I'm very happy with how it's turned out. Nice. Why did it kill you to write it? <laughs> how come? Because you, you just put all so much into it? Man, I'll tell you, like, uh, so it's not a sequel, right? It, it exists yeah. in the same universe as Damascus Station, but it's not... It's not tracking with the same protagonist from Damascus Station to this one. Um, so that was already right there kind of challenging because I was pretty committed up front to like creating a brand new cast of characters with the exception of maybe one. So that sucked. That just was hard, you know. And then the other thing that I'll tell you, I wrote about 120 pages of a book that was basically not this at all. Mm. and because my process is not highly structured or linear like I'm kind of when I'm starting a book I typically have an image in my head of where I want to go like I have a climactic kind of scene or and I don't even have characters but I just have like an image and I try to go there yeah. and I found with this one that I went down this path for four months of writing and it wasn't right Wow. And so I, I literally just threw it away. Oh, well, it might be, useful. it might be useful at some point. It, yeah. I mean, I didn't actually, you know, right. have a copy of it on my computer, but like, I just put it all in a folder, started a new one and just started over. Mm. And that was just, that was brutal. You know, I mean, that's just rough to go from like feeling maybe I'm clipping along here and clipping along here up to, you know, 50, 60,000 words and okay. And then just to kind of throw it away and start over. That's pretty rough. But yeah. um, I I finally found a way to get to kind of the image that I had had in my head. Uh, and Moscow X is what came out of it. Nice. And what do you, when, so when does this come out? Uh, October 3rd. October 3rd. Awesome. And have you started the next one yet? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, so I have. I would say I'm like 99% done with it. Like I, I literally am within a week or so oh, of, of being done, done. Uh, I've been faster on this one. And the third one, um, the, the working title right now is called the seventh floor, which is the CIA's kind of, you know, executive yeah. uh, area. Um, and it's, it's really, a, it's a mole hunt. It's like a classic mole hunt. A great title. Love the, love the title. It's, kind of bummed yeah. I didn't think of it. Um, it's an homage to Tinker Taylor, uh, nice. the the classic Le Carre novel, and uh, man, it's been it's been also brutal, less brutal, I would say, and really really fun to write because it's it's amazing. I mean, as you know, like you get into these things and they just get so complicated in the best and worst ways. So I'm like finally ticking and tying a few final pieces, and then you know the next couple of weeks will be will be pretty much done. That's awesome. It's uh, it's funny that you say done, done, because that's what I tell my wife. She's like, I thought you said you were done. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm done, but I'm not. I'm not done, done. Yeah, exactly. That's the exact terminology that I use because uh, it's so true. Like, yeah, finished, done. 
And she's like, oh, great. Now it now it's free time. No. <laughs> now, Incorrect. It's, downtime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's a little a lot more work to do. It never, it never ends. And uh, and I love it. Yeah. You I think I feel like being a writer, you're sort of signing up for just homework and perpetuity, right? Like <laughs> you're you're never like, yeah, I say done. It's funny. We my wife and I have a similar kind of language because basically I would say done to you uh or to your listeners, but like to her, it's kind of there's different stages of the book process now. I mean, we don't have that many, just two. We're kind of getting a sense of it, right? Like there's different stages. They're they all have different highs and different levels of misery to them. And they're never actually, at least I'm never done until I just hit a deadline that my my editor is basically oh, yeah. like, you know, I'm going to fly to Dallas and murder you unless you give me the book. So, you know, you're done. That's, that's, that's done, done. Is yeah. when, it gets when it's actually out there and you can make no more changes, it's right. off to the printer. Um, right. And, uh, and it's actually printing like that. That's right. <laughs> it's physically being printed. Oh, it's done, done. Yeah, uh, totally. Oh man. Awesome. Dude. Well, thank you so much for, for taking time today. Moscow X. Awesome. Thank you for what you did at the agency and uh, for writing these novels. And man, I'm looking forward to, to uh, really looking forward to the seventh floor. That's a, thank you. Don't let them thank talk you. you out of that title. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a good one. Okay. I appreciate that. And thanks for having me on, man. This is great. This is absolutely no great to hang out and hopefully we'll uh, link up in person soon. Likewise. Yeah. It'd be awesome. Awesome, man. Take care. All right. Black Rifle Coffee Company. You can help Black Rifle Coffee raise $1 million to benefit veterans through the boot campaign. All you need to do is grab a can of ready-to-drink coffee online or from your local grocery or convenience store. The boot campaign is one of the most renowned veteran-focused nonprofits in the country, working tirelessly to provide life-changing aid and benefits to service members and their families. Join forces with Black Rifle in the boot campaign from May through the end of the year, where every can of ready-to-drink coffee you buy will contribute to making this massive donation possible. Black Rifle ready-to-drink coffee is available in several great-tasting flavors on the Black Rifle Coffee website, at your local convenience or grocery store, and no matter where you are, you can fuel your caffeine fix while supporting veterans. Every time you crack open a can of ready-to-drink, you'll be making a huge difference in the lives of veterans and their families. Black Rifle Coffee is committed to serving the veteran community, and with your help, we can all continue to make a difference. Let's raise a can together to keep fueling Americans for a good cause. Check out blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose. Drink up. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, thank you to Badass Workbench. That's Badass-Workbench who made this. Great group of people out there. Be sure and check them out. And Fort Knox safes. Awesome. Absolutely loving that safe. Probably need another. Hold things like this. This is the SIG P320 right here from the Custom Works shop. So I got to build this one and go into Custom Works and Concierge Service under the Custom Works part of the website. And uh, you can build whatever pistol you want in a 320 or a 365. So very cool. So check them out, sixhour.com. Com. Also, DC Vintage Watches. So right here, if you can see that, this is the Captain Willard Seiko right here. So DC Vintage Watches, and this is the one from 
Apocalypse Now. Not the actual one that Martin Sheen wore, but uh, an example of the one that he wore. So very cool. Wanted one of these for years. DC Vintage Watches tracked it down and uh, made sure it was working. And this is just super cool. So thank you guys. Sincerely appreciated. Tacticalories. Oh, 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 yeah. I love the Tacticalories. Uh, they have a set that they sell for Thanksgiving. Last two Thanksgivings, I have used it on the turkey and it's been awesome. So thank you guys for sending me the new seasoning right here. And yeah, very cool. So tacticalories.com. Be sure and check them out. Also, Covert Threads, made in the USA. These socks right here. There is a, a former Marine who runs this. And yeah, very cool. Looking forward to checking these out. So thank you for sending these socks. I'm always in search of the perfect pair of socks. So covertthreads.com, uh, Marine-owned, operated, made in the USA. Be sure and check them out. And first form, and hardly any more of these Opti Reds left. Uh, so I've been having the uh, taking the Opti Reds every day and the Opti Greens here every day to power me through the podcasts and writing of the seventh novel. So be sure and check out firstform.com. And that's it for today. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about David McCloskey, go to his website, David McCloskey Books. That's D-A-V-I-D-M-C-C-L-O-S-K-E-Y books.com. Also follow him on Instagram at McCloskey Books. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com. That's the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.